following Christ means complete devotion for and complete focus on the gospel. Good afternoon, everyone. 各位弟兄姐妹平安。So in 1948, right after World War II, Ichiro Sekiguchi opened his first and only coffee house in Ginza, Tokyo. His supply was a warehouse left over by the Germans. And over the next 70 years, he began pushing the boundaries of what it meant. To brew coffee, he would age his own beans. Some of them aged over 40 years. Now imagine that he has beans older than most of us in this room. Eventually, he would start to design his own roaster, his own mill, his own grinder, his own pot, and his own cups, purely for the practice of seeking to brew the perfect cup of coffee. Asakiguchi could be truly said to inhabit the Japanese concept. Of shokunin, the direct translation of shokunin is a craftsman or artisan, but the spirit of a shokunin is someone who is deeply and singularly dedicated to their craft. They are relentlessly focused and completely committed to perfecting their art, often spending their entire life seeking perfection, and eventually, as they get older, hopefully pass on. Their knowledge to the next generation. Asakiguchi was a shokunin for coffee, and there are countless others in Japan like him. I'm sure five or six years ago, many of you saw the documentary、uh, Gyro Dreams of Sushi. He could be considered a shokunin for sushi. And though this term shokunin is Japanese, the spirit of a shokunin is something I think that we all universally admire. It could be the Swiss watchmaker. Perfecting that perfect watch, it could be a Texan in his barbecued smoked meats, or it could be a Chinese craftsman perfecting handmade noodles. So in our text today, we will explore Paul's encouragement for us, and how we also need to have this singular focus and devotion to the gospel. Our text today comes from First Corinthians chapter nine, verses nineteen to twenty-seven. You can find it in your bulletin. So you guys can follow along as I read. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, 
but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. So the Corinthian church, just a little bit of background, is actually quite similar to WSBC. The city of Corinth, like Shanghai, is a wealthy port city with a thriving economy, or at least prior to the lockdown, thriving economy. It was very diverse and multicultural. And like us, Paul, their founding pastor, was no longer with the church. He spent about a year and a half with them, and then now he's away from them. But he's writing this letter that was so crucial to Paul, to this church. And this entire book of Corinthians is a letter of love and care to the Corinthian church to warn them to stay unified, turn away from sin, and to hold fast to the gospel. In this section of chapter 9, we will be examining his encouragement of holding fast and persevering to this young church. Our main idea for today is following Christ means complete devotion for and complete focus on the gospel. I'll be bringing that down to two points. Point one, complete devotion for the gospel, verses 19 to 23. And point two, complete focus on the gospel, verses 24 to 27. Last week, Brian talked about how Paul was willing to give up his rights for the reward presenting the gospel free of charge to the Corinthians. And in our section, Paul continues this line of sacrifice. In verse 19, you can see, he says, I have made myself a servant to all. And then in verse 23, he says, I have become all things to all people. Now, Paul is now going beyond just giving up his rights. Right? He's now saying, I am willing to not just give up my rights, I'm willing to become a servant to all. And we have to ask, why? Why is Paul willing so far as to become a servant to all? What is his goal? What is his aim? What is his purpose? And we see this objective repeated four times by Paul. He says that I might win more of them. He repeats, I win the Jews, win those under the law, win those outside the law, and win the weak. So that's his, we can see his first objective, or the same objective, at least part one of that objective. And then in verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people by all means that I might save some. Save some. That's his second objective. His third objective, in verse 23, that I may share with them in its blessing. And so we can summarize, so his purpose for giving up his rights and becoming a servant to all so that he can win more, he can save some, and he can share in his blessing. Now we have to ask, what exactly is he winning them for? And what is he saving them from? And what blessings is he sharing that in? John chapter 3, verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We put all that together, and we could say that Paul is willing to become a servant to all, to win more to eternal life, and save some from the wrath of God, so that Paul himself can share in this blessing. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to take a bit of time for some self-examination. And you need to ask yourself, how much do you truly value eternal life? You see, the truth of the gospel 
is the only thing that genuinely matters in this life is what happens to our souls. Whatever satisfaction, happiness, pleasure you receive from the things of this world, they all pale in comparison to the everlasting joy we will experience after this life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In line with that, another question is, do you truly believe in the wrath of God? Not just, oh yes, there's, there's kind of this thing called hell, but how seriously do you actually consider his wrath? For many of us, even myself at times, we treat the gospel like it's this self-help manual. It's here to help my emotional or psychological needs. That is something to help us deal with depression or sadness, with loneliness, abandonment, or help you with fear and worry. I believe that even if the gospel had no effect, had zero effect on any of these daily issues, that it would be incomparably good news. If the gospel had zero effect on these daily issues, it would be incomparably good news. Just for the fact that it delivers us out from the wrath of God. Compared to His wrath, our job problems, parenting problems, relationship problems, financial problems, they are nothing compared to His wrath. They're tiny, minuscule, insignificant compared to the wrath that is coming. WSBC, how big have you made the wrath of God? And how big have you made eternal life? Is it the big thing in your life? Or do you often make your work struggles, your relationship struggles, your struggles with self-satisfaction and happiness, do you make those the big thing? Revelations 14.10 says, For those that do not put their trust in Jesus, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. For those today that do not know Jesus, or you've not given your life to God by putting your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to think, what is, what is causing you to struggle with this, with this decision? What is the hurdle that's blocking you from putting your faith in Jesus? If you're worried that, you know, what your parents might think, maybe your spouse, your partner would not be willing if you made this, if you, they wouldn't accept you making this decision. Now, I cannot guarantee that those relationships will change positively or negatively. The Bible does not promise that once you put your faith in God, your life will become easier or suffering will lessen. It actually guarantees that it's most likely going to increase. Right? What I can guarantee is that if you put your faith in Him, you will be saved from His wrath and eternal suffering. And you will experience the everlasting joy and enjoyment of Christ. That is the big thing. That is the one and only thing that truly matters in your life. So that's our first question. What is Paul's aim? What is his purpose? The second question that we need to ask is, what is Paul's actual strategy? 
What is this strategy to save people from God's wrath? So again, in verse 19, Paul states that he is free from all, but he's made himself a servant to all. Now that seems extremely confusing, right? If you think about it, right? How can you be both free from all and also a servant to all? Romans 6.22 says, uh, But now that you have been set free from sin, so you've been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So I'll say that again. But now, Romans 6.22, Now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. We are free, those who believe, We are free because we are no longer bound to this world. We are free from sin. We are free from the consequences of sin. We have become slaves to God and are only bound to Him. Now, because we now belong to God, we are also free from the structures of this world. We are free from the expectations of our parents, free from the expectations of our siblings, free from satisfying your managers, your direct reports, free from any cultural traditions, free from any government authority. The only person we need to answer to is God. And through that freedom, through that freedom, we can become a servant to all. Through that freedom, we can become a servant to all. Now let's see how that actually works. I think Paul's relationship, his stated relationship to the law, helps us to understand this better. So Paul says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. And to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Well, let's break that down because it can seem confusing. Right? Paul states three things in relation to him and the law. The first one, he says, I am not under the law. So relationship number one, Paul is not under the law. He says, though not being myself under the law, right? So not under the law. But relationship two, he's still under the law. He's not without the law, sorry. Relationship two, he is not without the law. He says, Paul not being outside the law of God. right, so that's relationship two, not without the law. And then relationship three to the law, he says, he is under the law the law Christ. So again, Paul is not under the law, but he's not without the law, and he's under the law of Christ. So let's talk about relationship one. He says, Paul says he's not under the law because he is, he is free from all. How is he not under the law? Well, he's, not, he's no longer bound to the law in two specific ways. He's no longer bound to the ceremonial and ceremonial Levitical law. Right? He's no longer bound to the ceremonial Levitical law. He no longer needs to eat certain foods, to wear certain clothes, or observe holy days according to the law. He's no longer bound to ceremonial law. Secondly, Paul is free from trying to earn his way into heaven through the law. You see, Israelites believe that holiness could be attained by observing all of God's laws total of 613 of them, right? If you observe all of God's laws, uh, and for modern, for modern Jews, it's 270 now. If you observe all of God's laws, you could achieve holiness. But in actuality, the law only revealed the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. 
Romans 7, 9 says, I was once alive, I was once alive apart from the law. So before Moses was given the law, he was alive. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. How does that work? Well, because before God gave him the law, there was no establishing of what is right or wrong according, according to God's law. Right? So once the law came, that's when sin is clear. Because now God has made very clear, this is what is sin, if you do not observe these laws. And because they could not fully observe the laws, all it brought was death. It did not bring life. Right? So Paul says he's free from that law that brought death. In 1 Corinthians 7.19, he reiterates this by saying, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. That's the ceremonial, the Levitical law of becoming circumcised when you become Jewish or know God. Is, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. So let's move on to relationship two. Yet relationship two, Paul says he is not without the law. So he's no longer under that ceremonial law, but he's, still, he's not without the law. He still has a law. So what law is that? What law is that? And that's where we get to relationship three. He is under the law of Christ. So under the law of Christ. What exactly is the law of Christ? It's mentioned one other time in the Bible in Galatians 6, chapter 2. Galatians 6, chapter 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So being under the law of Christ means that we have to bear one, another, one another's burdens. And I think Galatians 5.14 gives us even more clarity as what is this law of Christ and what does it mean to be under this law of Christ. It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. It's Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you love your neighbor as yourself. So what that means is we are no longer under the law, of the, the law that brought death. We are now under the law of Christ or the law of love, to bear one another's burdens and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, one way to paraphrase this entire section, verse 19 to 23, is since we are free, while under the law of love, we become servants to all to save more from the wrath of God and share in God's blessing. Now, what does this actually look like in practice? Right? What does it actually look like to be under the law of love and to uh, win some or to save more? Right? For Paul, it meant that when he was with the Jews, he would still uphold ceremonial laws so as not to cause them to stumble, though at the same time knowing and making it clear to others that these ceremonial laws had absolutely zero bearing on his salvation. He would simply observe these laws because some people, for them, it might become a barrier to knowing Jesus. Paul uses freedom to become a servant, to win them for Christ. And then when he's with the lawless, he would not observe these the Jewish ceremonial laws. He would eat food that was from the marketplace, which was associated with idol worship. Right? Now, Paul's strategy 
is not new. It's not something that, you know, uh, over a period of time, he was talking with Barnabas and Timothy, and they were doing a SWOT analysis of their ministry, and they were like, man, what's the best way to, like, advance the gospel? This is not new. So in Philippians 2, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. He continues, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God as the thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's strategy is not new. What Paul is doing is he is following Christ's example, who being the king of kings, chose to become a servant of all to save us, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Right? He's following Christ's example. So one thing for us is how are we supposed to follow Paul's example? How do we do this now? I don't really know about you guys, at least my life in Shanghai. I don't know any Jews. I kind of had one coworker who was Jewish, right? I can't really become a Jew to the Jews now. I'm pretty sure all of us in this room are considered Gentiles, right? So what, how do we do this now? Well, what Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to do then, at that time, and what we need to keep doing now, and I, I'm going to give you a caveat. This is going to be extremely difficult. It's very, very hard. It's not a simple task, right? But what Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to do then And what we need to do now is we need to understand that we are also free from the ceremonial laws, from earning our way into heaven through the law, and we are now under Christ. So we can become servants to all by overcoming any unnecessary difference between you and those you are trying to reach. Let me say that again. It's a very difficult task. You can be under the law of Christ and become a servant to all by trying to overcome, even eliminate, get rid of, and the key word, unnecessary differences between you and those you are trying to reach. Now, of course, being a teacher, we've got to give some examples. What does that actually look like? Right? Well, for example, and we see, we see this at church, Mark, our, our pastor who's no, not, our founding pastor who's not with us, similar to Paul, Danny, who was previously an elder at this church, and to some extent, John, right? In order to win the Chinese, what did they do? They learned Chinese, right? In order to win Chinese, they learned Chinese. So what about for us, right? We already know Chinese. Well, Possibly it could mean moving to a neighborhood that you're very comfortable in, you've lived there a long time, and rent is cheap, to be closer to the church and to be closer to people who do not know Christ. It could mean, you know, if you're trying to reach Muslims, you stop eating pork, even though you know eating pork is totally fine. Or to reach Buddhists, you eat vegetarian. Well, this is extremely difficult because there is a lot of pride that you have to get rid of in order to overcome unnecessary barriers. There's a lot of pride that we have to eliminate. You have to, the, the things, you have to potentially uh, relinquish the things that you value 
even to the point where certain things that you consider a core identity of yourself, right, you have to overcome these things. You have to overcome certain core identities of yourself. So for example, when I first moved to Chongqing in, in 2010, uh, one of the things my students knew, I was at a uh, university, Chongqing Yodian Dashu, one of the things my students knew about me was that I, I was of Taiwanese descent. My parents were from Taiwan, right? And, and as part of our ministry of, of, of teaching there, we would try to, three or four times a week, invite students in groups out to meals, right? And them knowing that I came from Taiwan, or I didn't come from Taiwan, or my family was from Taiwan, they would often want to talk about this, right? And 20, now and 2010, this is a very fraught topic, right? Now, they were not asking questions like, oh, what's Taiwan like? You know, is the food good? Is it beautiful there? Are there beaches? No, they would directly ask me, why does Taiwan want to separate from China? Are you guys not Chinese, right? Why do you guys want to start a war? You know? Like, what's wrong with you, right? Now, now, my pride would tell me, okay, let's, let's have a spirited discussion. Let's have a spirited debate about politics, about history. But I knew, I knew that no matter what I said, it would not matter even if I agreed with them 100%. No matter what I said, it would only create a barrier in between us. Just by simply engaging in this topic, it would create a barrier between us where if I potentially wanted to talk about Jesus, they're not going to listen to me anymore, talk about Jesus, because they already have this stigma in their mind of me being Taiwanese and holding certain beliefs about Taiwan. All right, so I had to eliminate that core identity of myself. I had to overcome that in order to become a servant to these students that did not know Jesus, that did not know Jesus, right? Brothers and sisters, what are the unnecessary differences between those you are trying to reach? Do you disagree with them about how they dress, how they eat, how they spend their money? Do you have political, nationalistic, or cultural differences? And maybe even some of you, I've been guilty of this before too, maybe some of you, there's a part of you secretly deep down where you believe that these people are beyond saving, that it would be a waste of time for you to become a servant to them. The only way we can eliminate these unnecessary differences is if we see the seriousness of God's wrath. And we make that the big thing, the only thing that matters. All right, let's move on to point two. Complete focus on the gospel, verses 24 to 27. Uh, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul compares the Christian life to a runner running a race and a boxer in a match. Now, one thing that he emphasizes in, in both of these comparisons is that they have a final goal, an ultimate reward, a prize. And for us, our Christian life is not a light jog in the park. It's not a friendly sparring match. The way we live and what we do in our lives has lasting consequences. 
it has lasting consequences. This life is an arena where you are proving who you are, you are proving what you care about, and most importantly, you are proving whom do you trust. Your eternal life, your final prize, soul depends on whom you put your trust and strength. Will you put it in man? Will you put it in yourself? Or will you put it in God? So our first sub-point of this point is focus on the prize. See, this world we live in, the culture that we live in, is devoted to distracting. It's devoted to distracting you from the big thing that we talked about, the wrath of God, eternal life. That's the big thing. So growing up, the world teaches you to focus on your grades, right? Right, Micah, wherever you are, right? <laughs> focus on learning how to socialize, learning to make good friends. Focus on time management skills, focus on study habits, on setting goals, short-term goals and long-term goals, right? And then as you, as you enter adulthood, then it, the world tells you, focus on finding a good job, a career, right? Focus on finding a spouse. Focus on, you know, things like uh, your investments. Focus on your savings, your next big thing that you want to buy. Uh, one of the biggest distractions is focus on being... Does your boss like you? Does your coworker, your parents, your cousins, siblings, your social groups, do they like you? Every day there are so many distractions, right? So many areas of focus that are, that if we are not focusing on the wrath of God, we are not focused on saving some, we're going to elevate the things that have no consequence, right? I'll say that again. If we're not focusing on the wrath of God, and we're not focusing on saving some, we will elevate the things that have no consequence on the eternal prize. When we lose focus, or if we lose focus on the big thing, we start to magnify the distractions. We think the distractions are the things that matter, right? Completing this project, the most important thing. The next big purchase, car, house, whatever, is the next is the most important thing making sure your clients your boss your coworkers girlfriend boyfriend spouse parents are happy and satisfied with you becomes the most important thing christians becoming a slave of christ a servant to all is extremely difficult every day you have to walk a very difficult thin line there's this line right here all right it's a very difficult line on one side of the line we have what we call intense separatism. Intense separatism. Where you separate yourself from the world so much that you have no connection to this world. You are no use to this world. Instead, most likely, you're constantly judging the world. Oh, why are these people always like this? Right? You're constantly judging the world. And in some situations, you've become so separated that probably you have very few non-Christians in your life that you're actually sharing the gospel to. That's one side of the line, intense separatism, right? On the other side of the line, on the other side of the line, we have unprincipled adaptation. Unprincipled adaptation. So intense separatism, unprincipled adaptation. And this is where you have no use to the world as a servant because you are just like the world, right? The things you talk about, the things you care about, the things you spend on time, your time on is no different than the world. The unsaved in your life see no difference in how you live your life and how they live their life. In fact, they might not even have any idea that you are a Christian, right? 
That is unprincipled adaptation. So how can we know? How can we know if you're walking this line or you've already stumbled into one of the two sides? So two questions for you guys to think about and really ask yourself is, are you becoming more worldly minded than they are becoming more spiritually minded? Right? I'll say that again. Are you becoming more worldly minded than they are becoming spiritually minded? Have you become so much of a servant engaging in the things that you should be tr- engaging in the things of this world <clears throat> and those that you should be trying to reach that you no longer live under the law of Christ? Christ does not call you to lose your holiness, but to gain their holiness. Right? Are you engaging so much in the things of this world with your non-believing friends, your coworkers, or even your family to a point where you care about everything except the gospel? Right? Are, they, are you becoming more worldly-minded or they're becoming more spiritually-minded? Our second question, if, is your passion for winning your friends and your family growing or is it shrinking? Right? Is your passion for winning your friends and your family growing or shrinking? And this is a really hard one because as Asians, it's so hard to try to reach your parents, especially in the Zhangbei, who are, who are not believers. Right? But is your passion for, for winning them growing or shrinking? If it's shrinking or it's non-existent, then you might need to go back and think more on the wrath of God and how real do you think it is, right? Especially those of us that have non-believing parents and are constantly criticized by your mother or your father, right? Those criticisms, the things that they're pushing in your life, they, they mean nothing to the fact that if your parents don't believe, right, and it's not up to you, it's up to God, but it's up to you to share with them the gospel, that they are going to receive the wrath of God. So our last sub-point uh, for today Focus on self-control. Focus on self-control. Paul writes, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And what Paul uses the boxing analogy, his opponent is not another person. His opponent is not another person. It's not unsaved people. It's his own body. He's boxing his own body. I do not box as beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. He is fighting to discipline his body because he knows how simple it is for his body to give in to the flesh, to give in to the temptations of this world instead of being set apart. And with our flesh, we need to be extremely self-disciplined and we need to be on high alert. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So I don't know, I know Jared does, but, but uh, not, not, not specifically this, but uh, how many of you like MMA, UFC? I know Jared, I don't know if anyone else does. But MMA fighters, especially the top fighters, they're people with a singular focus. They're what we call shokunins, right? their life revolves around one single thing, and that's to make sure their body and mind are in peak condition for battle. So you guys know Zhang Weili, right? UFC fighter, right? She has to train her conditioning. She has to do strength training. She has to train her technique, 
both standing and on the floor grappling. She has to train her diet. She even has to train her recovery. She has to train how she recovers. She's not, unlike me, she's not finishing her day with a tub of ice cream, vegging out with her favorite TV show, right? But one of the hardest things that they have to train is to cut weight. What does that mean? Cutting weight. So for example, Zhang Wei Li, she fights at 52 kg, 52 kilograms. But she usually probably walks around, her actual weight is probably a little bit closer to 60 kg. So instead of losing 8 kg for the fight, which means she'll probably lose some muscle and lose some power and not be at peak condition, she will try to lose 8 to 10 kilograms of water weight inside her body. Right? She'll try to lose 8 to 10 kilograms of water weight. Now, this is a very grueling and difficult task. How you do that is usually five to six days before the fight, you start by drinking less and less water to where the day of the weigh-in, that's before, the day before the fight, you, your weigh just make sure you make that 52 kg. Right? She drinks no water the day. Right? She drinks less and less until the, she reaches the point she drinks no water. Right? But not only that, she's not gonna eat any carbs or any salt because water binds to, to salt and binds to carbs. Right? And then, but it's not enough just to not drink water. It's not enough not to just uh, have a strict diet. You actually have to force water out of your body. And she'll do this by wearing a plastic tracksuit, a full body suit, including covering her head, right? She wears this constantly to force sweat, to force water out of her body. And she'll do long and slow exercises. She'll sit in a hot bath to make sure water comes out. And usually the day of weigh-in, she'll go to a sauna in that suit and sweat as much as possible to get as much water as she can in order to lose eight to 10 kg of water for the fight. And then right after weigh-in, she drinks as much as she can, she eats in order to gain the weight back. MMA fighters are willing to discipline their body to the extreme to be in the best condition just for a chance, not even guaranteed, to fight for a perishable prize. Our prize is not perishable. It's imperishable and it is guaranteed. And our prize is infinitely more valuable and glorious than any prize this world has to offer. We cannot be lazy or complacent towards disciplining your mind and your body. Well, the question is how? Are we supposed to be start doing push-ups for God, right? The answer, though straightforward, is difficult. We need to hold fast and persevere. We need to hold fast. Discipline your mind and your body by holding fast and persevere. Now, holding fast is mentioned 12 times in the epistles by three different authors. Paul himself writes it five times in five different letters. Romans 12, 9, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Philippians 2, 5, he says, Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. And my favorite delivered from an angel of God in Revelations, Revelations 3, 10 to 11. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. That's, the God, that's God's wrath that is coming to this world. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown, your imperishable prize. We are not saved from God's wrath just because you made the sinner's prayer. 
right? That one day you made that prayer does not guarantee that you're saved from God's wrath because whether you are truly saved will depend on if you can keep that faith until the end of your life or until Jesus comes again, all right? Whether or not you keep that faith depends on whether you can hold fast to the end of your life or whether Jesus comes again. This is not an easy task because if we profess to love Jesus, if we truly have died to ourselves and have been given, have given our lives to God, then we need not to <clears throat> only be avoiding people and all temptation until we get to heaven. No, that's not our task. Our, our task is not to just avoid all people and temptation. No, life would be much easier, right, if right, right after we made that sinner prayer, we were taken away by God into heaven, right? Even Paul says in Philippians 1, it would be much better to depart now and be with Christ. Instead, while we are still in this world, which we all are right now in this room, we must allow God's love to flow out of us by becoming servants to all, by becoming servants to all, to save some to Him without being distracted by the things of this world, to the point that we are no longer holding fast and persevering. And one specific application point, the only way we can hold fast, how we can specifically discipline ourselves, is ensuring that the Word of God is piercing our hearts. Ensuring that the Word of God is piercing our hearts. We need to become shokunins on God's living and piercing Word. Right? We need to become singularly focused on making sure God's Word is truly soaking we are soaking in God's word with our heart. Hebrews 4:12 says, "For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give account." Like Sekiguchi with coffee, and Zhangwei Lin with martial arts, we need to have a singular focus on holding fast to the Father by making sure we are soaking in His Word daily. So, uh, being a teacher and university guidance specifically, one thing I do with my students when we're, when we're doing time management or we're working on time management, I have this Excel sheet that I give them. And it's seven days, you know, seven days, and then it's broken down by hour, hourly from about 8 a.m to 9 to 10 p.m. when they're supposed to sleep, right, 10 p.m. What teenager sleeps at 10 o'clock, right? Um, and my task that I give them is that they need to fill out this Excel and be as specific and as honest as possible, right? Oh, studying for 10 hours a day, yeah, that's not honest, that's not real, right? So they need to fill out this Excel to be as specific and as honest as possible. And as they are filling out the hours, what will happen is there's a pie chart on the bottom of the Excel that will show the hours they spent on certain activities, and the percentage of time they've spent on those activities. God, brothers, I encourage you guys to go home tonight, and you don't have to fill out the Excel. If you really do want it, I can send it to you, right? And, and just take stock of how you're spending your time, right? Take stock of how you're spending your time outside of, the, um, outside of your work hours, outside of your, your hours that basically in all of your free time, what are you doing with it, right? Is your, <clears throat> and, and look at how much of that time is spent in God's word. 
And that not only includes you yourself reading the Bible, but it includes studying it with other people because that is crucial. Are you studying God's Word with other people? Because the only way we can hold fast to our faith and making sure that the distractions of this world stay small and the imperishable prize at the end of our race is the big thing, is complete devotion for and complete focus on the gospel. So I'll say that again. The only way we can hold fast to our faith to the end, because that's, that's how we prove to God that we truly have become slaves to God and servants to all, the only way we can hold fast to our faith and make sure the distractions of this world stay small and the imperishable prize at the end of our race is the big thing, is complete devotion for and complete focus on the gospel.